Jeff Mincham grew up on the family farm. In fact, his family had been farmers in South Australia for five generations. It was expected Jeff would be a farmer too. Then, when Jeff was a teenager, his dad told him something that would change his life. My father sat me down, uh, my brother, sat us down at the good old Laminex kitchen table and said, uh, well, there's no future for you farming here. You need to find your own way. Suddenly, Jeff had options and a way out of farming. I went to art school, <laughs> which is what I wanted to do. He went on to study painting, and while he was there, Jeff Mincham discovered ceramics. I met the potter's wheel for the first time, and ceramics just completely overwhelmed me. Bugger painting, I oh, forget it. There was nothing airy-fairy about this, it was blood and guts and real. <laughs> This is Object, a podcast about design and contemporary craft in Australia. I'm your host, Lisa Carl, from the Australian Design Centre. In Series 1, you'll meet the master craftspeople we call living treasures. What makes them a living treasure? What has driven them to a lifetime love of their craft? Is it the material, the process or both? How do they contribute and advocate for the arts? And what's their advice for makers who follow in their footsteps? Let's meet living treasure and master potter, Jeff Mincham. Jeff is one of Australia's most prominent ceramic artists with over 40 years of professional practice. He was awarded an Order of Australia for his services to the visual arts. Jeff's work is held in over 100 permanent public collections, including the National Gallery of Australia. As a master of Australian craft, Jeff was recognised as a living treasure by Australian Design Centre in 2009. And his Living Treasures exhibition toured around Australia from 2009 to 2012. Jeff is known for his large coil-built earthenware vessels. On these vessels are dramatic painterly interpretations of the South Australian landscape. The patchwork fields of the Flurry Peninsula, the sand dune grasses of the Coorong, and the leafy surrounds of the Adelaide Hills. In this episode of Object, you'll hear what it was like to witness the birth of the Australian crafts movement, how Jeff deals with success and failure and his characteristically blunt advice to makers. Jeff lives and works on the ancestral lands of the Paramunk and Kaurna people in the Adelaide Hills of South Australia. Today we're meeting in Canberra, where Jeff is in residence at Watson Art Centre with the Canberra Potters. Welcome, Jeff. Well, it's very pleasant to be here. Fantastic. Can you um, take us back to Adelaide, where your home studio is, and tell us what it looks like? Well, I'm very, very fortunate uh, to live at a place called Cherryville in the Adelaide Hills. It's a, a very beautiful part of the hills, a very rugged part of the hills, and a magnificent view out across the eastern ranges of the Adelaide Hills. And um, I think as a practising artist, I couldn't possibly work anywhere else but there. So how does the, the landscape of this part of South Australia connect to your work? The landscape side of my practice really came strongly into play 
After about 1996-97, I had a brief sojourn um, teaching at the Glasgow School of Art and um, hired a car and drove all over Scotland, all over Scotland. <laughs> the whole landscape experience of Scotland, well, really got into my head. I came home and looked at the landscape I lived in quite differently uh, to what I had. It was never ever about an imitation of what you see. It was about projecting through your work the ethos or the experience of the landscape and what was taking place in it. You know, growth, loss, the things um, changing constantly. Was creativity in making in your family um, important as you grew up? <laughs> this, is a, this is a really interesting question. Um, I'm a fifth generation South Australian um, and there are now seven uh, generations of my family. I'm the first one to not be a farmer. Uh, <laughs> so, a disappointment? Um, well, um, I, I think it's widely understood that I'm a great loss to farming. Um, but the um, uh, look, the situations like this, uh, I grew up in a, a small country town on the edge of Lake Alexandrina. Long history of farming in the family since the settlement of South Australia. I would have gone on to continue on in the family tradition. Shocking drought in 1966 and 67. The property was just never going to support us. Mm. So within three years, I was at the South Australian School of Art. So why art school? Was, 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 mm. there, was there that creativity and well, making yeah, inherent? I mean, um, uh, in my uh, school years in primary school and high school, I'd shown an aptitude for it and I was encouraged at a marvellous art teacher by the name of Helen Pannell. Uh, she encouraged uh, what she could see that I was interested in and the art room became a place of refuge for me, frankly. You know, it was a robust country high school. Uh, it was cricket, it was footy, it was it was that sort of stuff and I was attracted by the art room. It was just a uh, just an overwhelming inclination, you know, in, uh, that I couldn't seem to... Uh, manage without it, I think. So was it at high school that you first um, discovered ceramics or, or...? No, 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 that's uh, interesting. I was really painting and um, watercolour painting in particular. I was very fond of it because of the wonderful accidental qualities and spontaneity and all that sort of things. Great. So um, I had a scholarship that um, I'd won and the art teacher program was there. It was a very robust program in that you really had a basic humanities course with an art school course tacked onto it. Quite a number of prominent South Australian practising artists in my age group went down exactly the same path. The advantage was that you got a very good humanities education, you got a very good art education, you got the two. I was in my second year, I was training in painting and enjoying it. I, I duxed my year. Mm. And I was able to go home to Dad and say, well, look, okay, you know. <laughs> <laughs> um, no tractor for me. Quite by accident, I came across a book on, on ceramics in the library shelf and was terribly excited by what I saw. We had a Latvian teacher there at the time called Regina Jogaitis, Um and she was very inspiring mm. and we went into this little short course thing with her and uh, I met the potter's wheel for the first time and ceramics just completely overwhelmed me. 
bugger painting. I don't know, forget it. And uh, well, I went. What was it about the clay that that you know oh, that did overwhelm you that first uh, drew you in? Agriculture. <laughs> I was a farmer. I understood it. Uh, okay. <laughs> you know, this you could do. There was nothing airy fairy about this. It was blood and guts and real. <laughs> <laughs> there was uh, lots of stimulus and um, lots of us working our way into the clay world that was expanding outside the art school in the Australian craft movement was just taken off. And we were going through this and stepping out into a world well ready to receive us. That's an important little point. So it was a burgeoning time for the craft world as well as for you at art Mm. school. Well, the landscape seemed endless, you know. There was no horizon. It just went on. Um, There were so many opportunities. The crafts movement was underway and the crafts as a livelihood movement now forgotten. The idea was that you would learn to do this, you'd get very good at it, and you would... Uh, it would be your profession, it would be your life, you'd make a living at it. it. There was none, it wasn't just a hobby or something to do to make yourself feel um, more comfortable with the world. It was not like that at all. We really saw ourselves going out there into a profession and being successful at it and we had all the drive, ambition and commitment that we needed to go down that path. What does success mean to you? Um, Success means you can keep going. In order to achieve success, there are failures. Uh, In the ceramics world, plenty of them. Um, The best piece that you're ever going to come up with is always the next one. I look forward to it. (laughs) Keep going forward, keep going on success. It gives you the support and the encouragement and the financial support to keep going, to go on to the next one. Uh, Eventually, um, you're missing an action and um, that's the way it needs to be. Uh, I've often said to me, people say, you know, um, Jeff, are you you retired? You know, (laughs) and um, the answer to that is artists don't retire, they just die. You don't retire. Well, it keeps we, going. We hope that's a long time away. But what about those failures? What Have you been down a creative path that didn't work out, that sticks in your mind? Even things that didn't work out very well have eventually, later on, to my surprise, provided information or something that I uh, didn't expect. There will be little essays, I call them side journeys. I was asked to make a piece for an exhibition in Adelaide 18-odd months ago, somewhat reluctantly did it, and it turned out very well. And I opened a door and I thought, oh, okay, there's a whole set of ideas here uh, stretching out in front of me. I can do all sorts of things. And I had a repertoire of glazes and surfaces, some I hadn't used for years and years, that were brought into play Some of those mistakes in the past all of a sudden had meaning in the present. Uh, Been a very exciting journey. Not really aimed at a commercial outcome, but from an artistic point of view, very, very stimulating and rewarding for me. Yeah, I I think failure is is often the start of something new, isn't it? And, you know, you never kind of discount those failures because they will perhaps come back around and turn into something fantastic. Well, that's something I've learned particularly in the ceramics world, the setbacks are just part of a bigger process. I survived by selling my work in exhibitions and uh, to clients and collectors and so forth. I've managed to do it all my professional life. I've, 
only ever had rather scattered teaching situations, usually only part-time and not for that long. I've done workshops and demonstrations, lectures, all that sort of thing, but my financial survival has been based on the public acceptance of my work and the willingness of people to buy it. Now, unfortunately, I've never been market-driven. You've got to live within your own creative presence to survive in the modern art, in the contemporary art world, relying upon people telling you what you should be doing, uh, well, you're not going to last long. They keep changing their mind. You've got to have your own core beliefs and, and follow the path. My idea is to keep pushing forward and try and take people with me. One of the special moments that I remember is the opportunity I had to visit Jeff in his studio in the Adelaide Hills. Sandra Brown is a ceramic artist and was touring coordinator and curator of Jeff's Living Treasures exhibition. To see him physically working in his studio on these pieces that were truly monumental in size, in shapes of what he was trying to do, these flat shapes, those flat pieces in those days, that, that was really innovative, groundbreaking. Watching him coil build a large pot, his hands actually teasing and pushing the clay into the shapes. And, and it was really moving and it was very intimate in a lot of ways. And I think that was what really brought us together into a much more intimate curatorial relationship, if you can have that sort of thing. What do you think, Jeff, are the essential skills of a master ceramicist? Patience. Timing, the ability to survive disappointment, <laughs> and a sense of humour. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. I think that they are the essential skills for survival in Absolutely. many things, many things, <laughs> yeah. When you get creatively stuck, uh, you know, I think mm. as an artist you reach an impasse. How do you move through that? Writer's block. Hmm. Um, look, uh, that does happen. Um, you know, you've so many things coming together to produce a successful outcome. Sometimes it goes a bit wrong and you slip back and so you put it out in front of the public and you get a disappointing response. To really survive in the Australian art world, you need to be very strong within yourself. If you're desperate for public approval, you can, you're not going to last long. You know, the wave uh, settles down and, and the momentum can be lost and you've got to regain it. The answer is to go back to the beginning. Uh, I make tea bowls associated with the Japanese tea ceremony. And when I'm really lost, I go back and sit down and do that. Not many of them really work out. Some work out absolutely wonderfully. Others don't. Many, many don't. And you gradually regain your, your confidence, you know. And you go back to your basics. And this is why that good, strong core of basic skills are important when you do get lost. They're there. They'll rescue you. They're the compass you can pick up and find your way again. In the past, you've described some of your pieces as being like a poem or a message. 
that those works tell a story to the audience um, or the user. How does storytelling figure in your work? Sometimes I've described the little tea bowl there as, in a poetic way, and I say it's a sonnet. Over there is a very, very large, powerful work, and there's your epic poem. It's really simply about engaging the viewer and, okay, they're on board. Now, in fact, you are providing the components for them to tell the story. It reminds them of this, of that, uh, of something. In fact, you are writing a story for the people to read, but it's their story. You are giving them the bones of it, and I let the viewer put the flesh on the bones, so to speak. So they develop an intimate relationship with the thing. You talked earlier about your time in Scotland, but how has living and working in Australia influenced your work? Mm. I've always felt a sense of mission about being what I am, an Australian. We take from many different places, we gather it together, we create a complex strand. That's, I think, what I felt I've been involved in. Uh, draw from many sources, but are trying to come up with their own special consciousness. What I've noticed is we start out with a boom. We start out with a wild enthusiasm and uh, away we go and uh, fashions come, fashions go. There was a long period, um, 98 onwards into the early 2000s, where Australian ceramics suddenly uh, sort of dropped from view. It went off the agenda. Glass came on the, uh, into being everything, glass, all the galleries were showing glass, glass, and uh, ceramic uh, drifted off and we became unfashionable. Mm. Well, that was a good lesson, never be fashionable. We then got into a period, I suppose, where uh, ceramic started to get some grip again. Along the way, a lot of passengers had jumped off. <laughs> a lot of uh, people had decided, that, oh, this ceramics caper, give it up. And there was, at the end of that period, a kind of core group of us left. Well, just as well we hung around because ceramics started to pick up again. Over the last four or five years, it's all back. <laughs> everybody's going to classes and everybody's doing ceramics. And um, all of a sudden, uh, we're absolutely back on the agenda. Damn it, we're fashionable again, which is quite exciting. But after the last time, I'm very cautious. Ceramics was very much all about porcelain and fineness and refinement and perfection. And Jeff really was playing his own game. <laughs> Kylie Johnston works at Sabia Gallery in Sydney and was the gallery manager at Australian Design Centre during Jeff's Living Treasures exhibition. She remembers when Jeff's work was not in fashion. He was making very rough, textural, earthy, earthenware, lots of kind of corrosive kind of textures in the glazes. So he really was a point of difference. And I think there was a time where he just felt quite on the out and eventually <laughs> people would see what he saw and I suppose he was speaking in a language that really resonated with him and he kind of had to wait for us to catch up. Mm. 
As well as being a master ceramicist, you've contributed in many other ways to Australia's cultural landscape and you've been awarded an Order of Australia for your contributions. Can you tell us about your many years' work as an advocate for craft? In the crafts movement that was going on that I came into in the 1970s, there were very strong and powerful organisations that were guiding uh, uh, us all down these paths. And there was the Crafts Council of Australia and all the state crafts council network. I became part of it very quickly, but I always understood right from the beginning that you made your contribution to your profession. I wanted to think of it as a profession, not just a a hobby. I still have to say that to people. Well, this is my profession, not my hobby. And you contribute to your profession. The growth of it, the success of it, and the success of others makes the field grow, uh, expands the opportunities for everybody. And I've always, from the very beginning, been, uh, been committed to doing it. I've had a lot to do with a lot of arts organisations. And you get an insight into a whole lot of things you wouldn't otherwise. The isolation of the studio, uh, uh, you know, they can be difficult. You can cut yourself off from the world and, <laughs> and you know, miss out on a lot of information. You miss out on the ability to put a whole lot of things in context. So um, I've tried to make a contribution there. I've often guided organisations through tough periods. Whatever contribution I've made, I've been richly rewarded in my ability to understand the context of a whole lot of things about the practice of art and the nature of it in our society. I'm grateful for it. Do you think we're at a time now when advocacy is possibly even more important? Absolutely. The arts in Australia at the moment are suffering from a lack of strong, powerful advocacy. I'll be absolutely blunt here. We're not playing the politics of the game strongly or determinedly enough. We're short on the kind of a dynamic of leadership that so much influenced the early days of my professional life. There were strong and powerful voices in the arts that spoke with conviction and the politicians were scared of them. We're in a very different situation now. The advocacy for arts and what it does for humanity and for our society and our culture is lacking at the moment. That'll get me into trouble. <laughs> So what do we need? Do we need an arts summit or do we need a uh, cultural policy? Cultural policy. Uh, the arts summits can, uh, you know, God, another talk fest. But arts policy is, is a deep... We, we're putting ourselves uh, into a deeper frame of mind here about the genuineness of art to the people of the country, of Australia. It's a big, big, big idea. It is art is humankind's really big idea. And if you can harness the power of it, there are so many benefits that flow out into the community that in turn bring benefits back again. Arts as social repair, as a social dynamic that give people a sense of well-being, all that sort of stuff, that's quite superficial. Art is deeper and far, far more profound. Arts policy needs to deal with it at that level. You have a long list of accomplishments across your career. What would be the one that you're most proud of? When you're being up here uh, working in Canberra over the last few weeks, the, I reflect upon 
an event that I was uh, part of here in uh, 1988 when the head of the art school in the ceramics department here, Alan Watt, came up with this idea of holding the first international ceramics and glass symposium in Australia. Sadly, it was the last. <laughs> and we all came up here, Australians and international uh, visitors, and we worked together for a month. And uh, it was a very, very, very big thing in my life. Influenced me for many years, gave me connections for, for many, many years. I got exposed to the world of international, the international ceramics scene, European ceramics and English ceramics. But the thing that really uh, uh, left me mildly stunned was a phone call in the latter part of 2008 when I was told that I'd been selected to be uh, recognised under the Living Treasure Program. <laughs> I didn't fully understand uh, it sounded good. <laughs> I didn't understand what it would entail. But that was definitely a very important thing for me and it came at a very important time in my life. It changed me a lot, so much so I would find it very hard to be able to imagine uh, how the next 10 years or so would have evolved without it. So for you, Jeff, what's the purpose of having this recognition as a living treasure master of Australian craft? It puts a lot of information out there into the community in a very successfully packaged format that people can uh, enjoy and see and bring to bear uh, as inspiration, if not into their own practice, into their lives. You get an exhibition which is created in a very special way for a very special purpose and through the Visions program, it has been very successfully delivered into the Australian community right across Australia. Every state has participated extensively. In my national touring show, there were 14 shows. Uh, there's been nine. I think the average is about nine living treasures. That's probably put 90-odd exhibitions out onto the Australian landscape. The way it's prepared means the artists themselves make a huge effort to produce a body of work, really a, a culmination of their experience up to that time. It's very intimidating. God, blimey, you really do, you know, feel the pressure. But it delivers in getting art out to the people. What's your advice, Jeff, to other makers? Never give up. <laughs> No, you, you know, no matter how, how disappointed things are from time to time, no matter how many setbacks there are, no matter how bad the bank account is, don't give up. <laughs> Thank you so much for talking with me today, Jeff. That was Jeff Mincham, looking back on over 40 years of practice. Some of his words of wisdom that I took away were to follow your own path. When you failed, go back to basics. For Jeff, that's making Japanese tea bowls. And whatever you do, don't be fashionable. And keep going, don't give up. See the show notes for images and videos about Jeff's practice on our website, australiandesigncentre.com slash podcast. In the next episode of Object, you'll meet Tasmanian Aboriginal shell necklace maker Lola Greeno. Tasmanian Aboriginal shell necklaces are unique to us, unique in the way that our earlier women, uh, you know, like Trungadini, Fanny Cochran-Smith, right through my generation of families, they were collected mariner shells in a very unique way where the women had to obviously study the environment first. Object is a podcast 
by the Australian Design Centre. The Gadigal people of the Eora Nation are the traditional custodians of this place we now call Sydney, where the Australian Design Centre is located and where this podcast was made. We'd like to thank the Australia Council for the Arts for funding support for OBJECT. You can follow the Australian Design Centre on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. OBJECT is produced by Jane Curtis in collaboration with Lisa Carl and Alex Fiveash. Thank you for listening. <laughs>